good to see you all. And of course, if you're visiting, we are extremely glad that you're here in our midst. If this is your first time at church in a long while, or you're not usually a churchgoer and you're here based on nothing but tradition, we are very glad that God's got you in our midst. And while we have you, we're going to celebrate the glories of the incarnate God this morning. Amen? Amen. uh, it's, it's It's an exciting day for a few reasons. One of them is because today, December 25th, we actually have a very... A uh, special guest or visitor, if you want to say that, uh, uh, a big guy. He's travelled a long way from the very cold area, uh, way up north. If I keep on describing him, you'll think I'm talking about Sander, but we don't do that here. <laughs> I am, of course, talking about our, our founding church pastor who 15, 14 or so years ago started this church, but five years ago actually was taken by the Lord over to America. It makes you sound like he was raptured away. <laughs> Flew on a plane and went, of course, over to America to do some church revitalization and ministry work, and God's got him back here for the time being and uh, whatever until the next stage of uh, ministry uh, occurs for him. But of course, Craig in the blue over here has joined his wonderful wife, Kata, and, the, uh, and his kids with us, so we're glad to have them. But of course, it's Christmas, so, uh, so that's great to, to be falling on a Sunday. In, in a real sense, every Sunday is, is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and Christmas all rolled up into one because every single Sunday we get up out of bed, we come in, we sing our songs, we hear the word, we celebrate, we remind ourselves, and then we go out into the week on the, on the fuel of the reminder that Jesus is God who bled and died for our sin, who earned a righteousness for us, and has made a way for us sinful human beings to be in the presence of God for all eternity with great joy. That's why we love being here on the Lord's Day, Amen. So happy Lord's Day, ladies and gentlemen. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. (coughs) Again, I didn't introduce myself, so if you are new, my name is Tom, and I uh, have the honor of being the teaching, preaching elder in these parts. We've just heard some readings from Luke, and that was the historical account of the the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ, uh, the the second person of the Trinity, eternal in his existence, uh, infinite in all of his attributes, come down into the, the the womb of a virgin woman who was chosen by God, Mary, of course, uh, for that, that that beautiful, wonderful first Christmas day. We've heard the history. That's what God inspired through Luke to write down what happened. Today, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to see why it happened. Or in other words, we've looked at the, we've heard the, the historical story. Now we're going to look at the theological reason. Why is it that the God-man happened? Why is it that God became man? Back uh, many centuries ago, there was a fellow by the name of Anselm, and he wrote a book. In the Latin, it was called, the short title was Cur Deus Homo. Okay? And, and what it meant, of course, was why the God-man? Why in the world, the God? if God is God and he could do all that he could have done whenever he wanted ever, why did he choose this whole Christmas incarnation, living, suffering story? Why did he choose that? Why, why was it necessary and was it necessary? And today in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, we see the, the answer given to us from the scripture writer, from the, from the book of Hebrews, the, the answer that Anselm would give But first, before he would, of course, the answer that God himself gave, why Christmas happened at all. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me, verse 1, and I'll be reading until uh, verse 14. 4. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it 
can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would they have not ceased to be offered? Would, no, would they no longer be having any consciousness of sins? Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the bloods of bulls and goats to take away sin. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold... I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, they are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. So he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. May the Lord bless in our midst this morning his own powerful, inerrant, good news word this morning. Amen. Amen. Friends, we have a few uh, reasons to be thankful for the incarnation of God. We're going to look at a few of them, then we'll get home, keep on opening presents and celebrating with food and family and friends the good news of the gospel. But first, the reason that God became man was in order to meet the divine demand for absolute perfect obedience. God being who he is, he can never, would never, would never want to, never could even if he wanted to, God could never ever pass his acceptance and his pleasure, his approval onto beings that were standing in a state of guilt. God being righteous, infinitely righteous, perfectly holy, he could never look at people who had broken his law, who had in their account anything other than a perfect, infinite, complete obedience on their record. He could never look at somebody like that, which is you and me, by the way, which is every single one of us from the womb. He could never look at us and say, you're acceptable. I approve of you and who you are and what you've done. You will be blessed by my blessing in eternal life. He could never do that. It is a, it is a part of his nature and it is a part of what we see in scripture. That what he, what he demands, what God demands, our creator, every one of us, what he demands in order for us to receive his acceptance and his pleasure and his approval is a life record of absolute perfect obedience. Now, the question becomes for us, and this is the question of all the ages, every religion. This is the biggest question of religion. How does man, how does man, woman, child, how any of us humans attain such a thing that is called a perfect righteousness, a perfect life of obedience to show God, to be able on our own merits, be approved and welcomed 
into heaven. Now, one, of course, religious, legalistic, common, natural, this is the, the human assumption, is that the way that we gain right standing with God, the way that we develop, produce, attain a righteous record is that God has given to us a law. It's on our conscience. We know these things, not to lie, not to steal, not to, not to commit adulterous acts or thoughts, not to speak hatefully towards others, not to covet what they have, not to blaspheme God, dishonor his Sabbath or worship other gods, worship God through pictures, all these things. All these things we are meant, we are meant to, to know and we know that God's law is there, but also God's law is in the word. Uh, through the Ten Commandments, through the commandments of Scripture. So obviously we think God gave us commandments. God gave us the law, and it's like a path to righteousness. If we walk along it hard enough and diligently enough and closely enough, and if we climb the ladder high enough, we will eventually get to the place where God looks at us and says, approved, righteous, obedient. But look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. This is how Jesus thinks about that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, in other words, at Christmas, in the Christmas story, in the whole Christmas narrative, when God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, when God, the Son, came down into our world, he said, and what a marvel, we can just skip over that so easily. We could do a whole uh, hour-long sermon just on that phrase, that Christ came into the world, that that condescending grace is beyond any one of us. But here it is. When he came into the world, he said. Now, what did God say about God and his relationship to his own law given to his creatures? What did, what did Jesus say? The great teacher, the great prophet, God himself. What did he say? The very God who wrote scripture through men of the past in the prophets. What did he say about the very law that he had written through them and now come into the world to fulfill? What did he say about that law? He says this. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. What? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Look at verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken how much pleasure? No pleasure. But look down at look down at the end of verse 8 in the brackets if you've got an ESV. It says, These are offered according to the law. See the paradox? Jesus could never come into the world. And then watch a whole bunch of people trying to obey the sin offerings and the, the guilt offerings and the sacrifices and say to them. What the heck gave you that idea? That's pretty dumb. He could never do that. You know what they would say? Uh, you wrote it. It's the law. We have to do it. It's written down. God told us. It's, it's his law. What, is, what right does God have? Wait, is this not ridiculous to you that God would come into the world that he made, that he would come down and hold up the law that he wrote and then say to people who are trying to obey the law that he commanded them to obey and say, God doesn't want any of this. What are you doing? What's wrong with you people? But of course, he doesn't, he doesn't quite, quite say like that, does he? He doesn't come in and start saying that the offerings and the, and the law and God's own commandments are fallen and frail and, and useless and sinful and evil. He doesn't say that. He's not an animal activist that comes in and starts petitioning for the lambs and the bulls. That's not what he's doing at all. What he's doing is coming down and saying, in these things, 
these obediences from human beings, God has no objective pleasure. He doesn't look at your life and see a bunch of sin and then a few dead animals and a few acts of obedience, Sunday services, ministry activity, generosity to other people, fidelity in my marriage, loving father, offerings, honesty at work. He doesn't look at those things and then see the scale tip and say, in these things, in the obedience to the law, you have had my approval. You are accepted. He doesn't do that. In other words, your obedience to the law gives God no pleasure whatsoever. He doesn't like it. He doesn't think it's impressive. It doesn't meet his standards. It's unapproved and unacceptable. Not getting through customs. Sent home. Not allowed. But God looks at it your attempts of obedience to his divine perfect law. What a conundrum. We do not get a righteousness. We do not receive the approval of perfection because we fulfilled the law. Then we have to ask the question, of course, then why? I think it's a polite question. Why did he command them? Because whether they're effective to our salvation or not, it's the law. You still have to do them. It's still God's requirements. In fact, you'll be judged for every time you didn't obey the law. And every time you did obey the law, you don't get any golden stars. You get not a single day off of hell just because after looking lustfully, you then went and told your wife that you loved them. No, you don't get any days off of hell because of your obedience. So why? Why did he demand them? Why is it the law of God if it's so ineffective? And we're going to see the answer in verse 3. Go to verse 3. In these sacrifices, in these, these law obedience to what God told them to do, by doing those things, there is a reminder of sins every year. This is true of the whole law of God. This is true of your relationship to God through his law, is that every time you read a commandment, you're not supposed to think another rung on the ladder that if I climb, I'm closer to heaven. You're not supposed to think another law, another commandment in the Bible. Here's another step along the stepping stone, the yellow brick road to heaven. That's not how you're supposed to think. You're supposed to see the law like a mirror. And as you look at the law, it shines back to you and tells you what you're really like. So we don't have a righteousness of our own. We're sinners. God gives us the law. Does that produce in us a righteousness? No, we're sinners. We can never obey it enough to produce a righteousness. So what does it do for us? It just screams at us every time you read it, which you're commanded to do every day in the Old Testament. Every law, every obedience, every single thing you read, the Bible is telling you what? You're not good enough. You don't have a righteousness. You can never have a righteousness. Look, I'll even give you another command that you'll never be able to fulfill. What's it supposed to be doing? It's a messenger from God to tell us, don't try and obey your way to heaven. It'll take you to hell. That's what Romans 3 tells us. In the law, and this is so freeing for some of us because we've been so, we've been crumpled and, and strangled under the weight of trying to obey this heavenly cosmic being. 
We hate him. We, we, have, we hate ourselves. We hate the law because we're so unable to do it. And then you come to church and look around and just think, does everybody do this fine? Am I the only one aching to the very fiber of my being that I can't do that and I'm sinful and filthy and putrid? And the releasing, cleansing news for you today is that God never gave you the law for you to be perfect. Every ache, every sense of guilt, every, every filthy part of your conscience, that's God saying, yeah, I know that already and more. I needed you to know it. I needed you to know you're a sinner. I needed you to know you can never be perfect. I needed you to know that you needed Jesus. That's why the law was given, to show you you can't be righteous, to point you to Jesus Christ. Because look at the great answer to this question. Look at verse Look at verse. Five, at the last line of verse 5, and then we'll look at verse 7. <clears throat> but a body. God doesn't like the people's obedience to the laws. He doesn't care much for it. He has no pleasure in their obedience. But, so this is telling us, but something opposite is about to be said. He has no pleasure in our obedience, but there's pleasure in something else. But, verse 5 ends, a body you have prepared for me. Look at verse 7. I said, and he quotes the Old Testament, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Do you see what's being said? Humankind. Jesus comes into the world, and he looks at us and says, Humankind cannot please you through their obedience, offering, sacrifices, law, obedience. It's never going to please you, but... You've given me a body, and you've given me a will. And finally, for the first time in all of human history, there is a human being who can fully and perfectly and completely obey the law that God gave to human beings. So that it's not our obedience he's pleased with, it's the body given to Jesus so that he can obey for us, so that living the whole life, I mean, we heard it even from his conception, he was, he was holy. He was spared from the, the original sin from his father. He was, he was miraculously conceived in the womb so that he would be the holy one, pure, undefiled in that cell in the mother's womb, and then born without sin. I don't know what a birth, what a childhood, what a baby looks like without sin, Maybe more sleep, I don't know. Pretty cool, he died, uh, so he lived, he rose, he grew up, perfect teenager, perfect young man, not an ounce of sin in behavior, thought, or speech, perfect, completely filling up the law of God, and then dying without sin, without any notion of hatred towards God, rose again, and you know what he does now? He goes before the Father and basically just quotes this again, Father, you have no pleasure in their obedience. They have no hope in obeying your law. But this body, in this body, there is a record of perfect, human, righteous, complete obedience to the law. Look on me and see them in me. For there is in the Son such infinite value that he can cover every human being who places their trust in him. God demanded a perfect human righteousness for his acceptance and his approval, and then us failing to, to, to provide it. He provided it himself in the body, the life, death, resurrection of his son, Jesus. That's why the God-man. Firstly, to give, 
a perfect righteousness to you and make it available on no terms other than faith. Faith is just believing, accepting that promise. You do that and his righteousness is yours. But I hope you're thinking of the other part of the equation. I hope, like the book of Hebrews, you're also concerned for the righteousness of God. Because if I promise to you today a perfect righteousness that can pass God's standards, any law-abiding, godly, born-again human being would ask, what about my sin? It's kept me up at night. I've hurt other people. I've abused. I've stolen. I've taken. I've hurt. I, I know I'm not right with God. And what, somebody comes and obeys in my place. What happens to my sin? And that is the second reason Jesus came as the God-man. First, to provide a perfect human record of obedience. Secondly, to provide the payment for our sin. Look over at verse 1. He's going to tell us that he provided, that, that thing, the second thing that God demands. He demands that all sin is legally paid for to its full extent, then the sin can be done away with. Legal payment to its full extent. Look at verse 1, and, and this starts looking back and saying, okay, sacrifice is needed. We needed a righteousness. He got a body to do that. But a sacrifice for sin is needed. Payment was needed. And so we start sort of thinking, and I want us to think along this morning. What did you think was happening when the millions, literally millions and millions and millions just of lambs were offered in the, since the period of Moses until Jesus came into the world. Millions. Imagine if you could count the, le I'm sorry if you're squeamish this morning, hopefully you love lamb, the meat, not the animal, uh, but, 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 but can you imagine the, the, the gallon count of blood shed of millions of lambs on the altars of the temple? What was happening there? What do you think was happening between God and man? What was happening to the sin that was condemning mankind? Was, was any of it leaving? Was, was that acceptable? Was it effective? Look at what the Bible tells us about the, the offerings that the Bible demanded they do. Verse 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, in other words, because the whole Old Testament system was just, quoting Sinclair Ferguson here, a divine pop-up book that they lived in, because it was just telling a story, because it was just pointing to something ultimate, right? Because it was just the shadow of the good things that would come, rather than the true form of the realities, it could never, by those same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Not a single one of the animals offered. Not a single set. Now, can you imagine being a Jew at this point? If you were wrongly taught or if you had made wrong conclusions. Now, you're sitting listening to this book and you've sacrificed money to buy a lamb for a sacrifice. You've given offerings in order to get a bird to sacrifice. You've gone without a meal so that you can take a bull to sacrifice. You've done all of these sacrifices. You've bled, you've sweated, you've cried over what you've lost in order. You know, now, it's all worth it though, right? Because at least at the end of the day, you may be poorer, you may be hungrier, you may be with less livestock, but at least at the end of the day, your conscience bears you witness that God in heaven has forgiven your sins. Or so you thought. 
Then you read what God says. He says every single one of those had zero substance and had zero effect. And again you ask, if my obedience couldn't provide a perfection and my sacrifices couldn't wipe away my sin, then why did I do them? And verse 3 reminds us again. Look back at verse 3. This is what we're all too apt to forget. We'll read it again. In these sacrifices, there's a reminder, a reminder of sins every year. Not a reminder of sins forgiven. Not a reminder of a cleansed conscience. They were never able to walk away from the altar. Maybe they crossed their fingers. Maybe they, maybe they got down on their knees. Maybe they just hoped and wished and clenched and said, come on, this time. And none of their conscience ever felt any better. And the proof of the pudding, right? The proof that the sacrifices weren't working. In fact, the proof that they should have picked up on to know that this is a reminder, this is a teaching action, it's not actually saving me, something more ultimate is needed, something better will come, this is just shadow, but we do them to be reminded. The thing that should have told them that, clearly, was the fact that they had to keep on offering the sacrifices. Look at verse 2. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost condescending what he says to these, to these poor Jews who have become Christians. He says, otherwise... He just poses it a question. Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Have any of your grandmas ever signed up to an online iPad com competition? Or have they ever signed up to help the, uh, the Swedish prince uh, and all he needs is her credit card details? Okay, and, and, uh, and so she sends him, willing to help a, a rightful royal get his throne back, or or a distant cousin she didn't know she had, named Wape, and he just needs her, her, her social security and her pin code and his cousin, Queen Julius. And you go, Grandma, look at me. Did any of this make sense to you? You, you? This was a scam. I could see it a mile off. I could smell it before I came in. I knew all of this was a... How did you not notice? Did you not put one and one, and one together, right? And she's sitting there going, oh, I, I probably should have noticed, right? No free iPad, no Swedish prince, no long-lost cousin with an inheritance. The writer of the Hebrews is kind of doing that with, with the Christians now, who, who used to live under this whole system. He's going, guys, you're telling me the sacrifices make you feel better, wipe away your sin, make you right with God, right? Why more than one? Or in other words, let's say it this way. If you have a mate, or if it's you, some of you look dodgy enough to do this, if you have a business, or, or if you've signed up for a business, once for all termite, uh, 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 what do they, they call execution? That's not what it is. Extermination. There you go. Less, less bloody. Once for all termite. Ex I've forgotten again. Extermination. Man, how many times have you chanted that back in church? That's a that's a weird weird Christmas day. Anyway, not a part of the liturgy formally. Here's, here's the guy, and he tells you once for all termite extermination. Once for all, I'll come to your house, done. No more termites ever. And you say, it's kind of expensive, but absolutely worth it. And he says, and I only do annual subscriptions. 
So here's the dotted line. You sign, you'll pay in advance for five years. I'll come back every year and do the once for all time termite extermination. You know, this is great. You sign, your son comes home and goes, Mom, did you not? Dad, did you? Once for all and then every year are oxymoronic, right? Country music. They don't go together. You can't have... <laughs> that gets the applause. You gave a half-hearted amen when I spoke of the resurrection of Jesus, but you applauded that. I love country music, and I take that personally. I'll fight you later in the foyer. So here we go. Absolutely oxymoronic that it would be efficacious, effective, taking it away every single time. I'm going to come back and kill all the termites that I absolutely obliterated. Last year. Do you get the point? I'm laboring the fact that a finished atonement would mean one atonement, one sacrifice. Not the millions, not the daily, not the twice daily, not every year into the holy place. What were we thinking? Was this not being screamed at us? That verse, 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 four, verse the three here, sorry, verse four, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why did that not click earlier? Why was that not obvious to us? Of course it couldn't take away sin. How much do you think that God loves lambs? That he can look at a sinner who has obliterated his law, spat in his face, abused other people, rejected his lordship, claimed their autonomy in a world that he created, and then look at a dead carcass of a lamb and say, oh, sorry, it's all good. Are we kidding? That we could ever believe, maybe you've never, never butchered a lamb, put it on the temple, but you, you've, you've brought some, you've at least told God about your good deeds, I put up with this hard marriage, or, or I, was, I was righteous here, or, or I, I forgave my, my hurtful parents, or I, I gave a lot to the mission, or look at what I've done, come on God, look at this, I deserve something, how blasphemous it is to the infinite standards of God's holiness to be able to say that anything in all of creation could ever cover a single sin we've ever committed. Never. But Jesus. Look at verse 11. That all being true, the useless ineffectiveness of the lambs and bulls and goats, verse 11, therefore, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. How many phrases in there just drove the whole... Every priest... What? How many priests does it take to make one effective sacrifice? Many lineages, generations, 1,500 years, multiple families, one clan from Levi, all of them, they were all employed to do things that were utterly pointless. And it says they stand daily on their shift. You don't, you don't rest as a priest, you're a butcher. You're slaughtering, you're bleeding, you're burning the carcass, you're throwing the guts out. You're slaughtering, you're bleeding, you're burning the carcass, you're throwing the guts. You're slaughtering, you're bleeding, you burn the carcass for hours and hours at a time, every single day in your white robes. Your, your wife needs nappy sand at home. They're white when you come in. They're dripping crimson when you go home. And what's it meant to tell them? None of them were effective. You're doing you're doing something that's pointing to something. It's useful for that. You haven't taken away any single sins. They, every priest stands every day at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, 
Merry Christmas. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he did what no priest would ever be allowed to do on his shift. He sat down. Can you imagine the the agony of the priests hearing this or seeing it? If Jesus was to play it out in the temple, they're laboring, their grandfather taught them how to do this, they're sweating, they're covered in blood, the line has not gotten any shorter, hundreds of thousands of Jews are still coming up, you take your breath, you get your blade out, you keep on cutting, and here Jesus wanders in, offers one sacrifice, walks out, sits down at the right hand of God. What did he offer? Why the God-man? Same question. Why the God-man? What did he offer? He offered himself. In coming, he brought the one sacrifice that could be offered once for all time for every sin. Hebrews is laboring this point so much, it's all piled up so that as you get to that phrase... Offered for all time a single sacrifice. It's like a pile driver. The weight is all built up on this one little phrase and it drives it into our heart. One sacrifice for all time. That's it. Christ had such a pleasure in the eyes of the Father. He had such a perfection in his own life. He had such a value in his lifeblood that being able to come forward and being the sacrifice given, he died once for all. Never needs to be repeated. We don't repeat it in the mass. We don't keep a Jesus on the cross as a crucifix. He doesn't go to heaven to keep on shedding blood. There is no more suffering for Jesus. He suffered once, terribly, bloody, under the wrath of God, with, with full terror and full eyes open to the wrath that he was receiving, but it happened once, and he died. And the proof of the fact that it was acceptable The proof of the fact that the death of that Jew 2,000 years ago on the countryside was in fact the divine transaction between man, God, more accurately between God himself and God himself. The proof that that little act was in fact the cosmic transaction, the great exchange of sin and righteousness between man and God is this. Look at the end of verse 12. When he had offered that sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is the third point of Christmas. Firstly, it's to provide us a righteousness that gets God's approval and brings us into heaven. Secondly, it is to pay once for all, for all of our sins. And thirdly, Christmas stands as an eternal, unending emblem or sign for all of us. God loves his signs. We all know the story of Noah. God flooded the world in wrath saved a man in the ark, and what was the promise that he gave to mankind starting with Noah, that he would never do it again? Okay, when when Noah was living a few more hundred years and he's looking around and he goes, I don't know, they're pretty debauched again. I forgot my sacrifice yesterday. The rain's coming, I'm nervous, right? So that us living in the 21st century, another parade, that person in office again. The clouds are looking pretty judgy. 
God going to flood us again? If he doesn't, I think he owes Noah's generation an apology. We're getting pretty wrathy, don't you reckon? The weatherman's going to start saying deluge time pretty soon. We're nervous. When's God going to judge again? And then you remember. There's a rainbow in the sky. God put that there as an emblem, as a reminder. I won't do it. I know you deserve it. I won't do it. I know you're debauched. I know you're sinful. But I'm preserving so that I can save people for my son. Or in Moses' day, we, we even looked at this in, uh, in the first couple of verses. In the Jewish day, the, their sign was fairly negative, and there were some positive parts. God loved the physical sign. He gave to them in the blood of the bulls and the goats and the temple and the whole system. One sign was, this is taking away no sin. But the other sign was, God would provide the sacrifice necessary. God had not given up on his people. That There is a temple which we can't go into, but there is a temple in our midst. He's here. There was a sign to remind them. Has God forgotten us? No. No, he's communing with us. And in this new covenant age, the greatest act and the greatest promise has been given from God to man. Complete forgiveness, perfect righteousness. All you have to do is believe that and have faith, not give, not offer, not do anything. Just believe it and you will be saved, brought into God's eternal family, blessed and loved. And and all of that great promise demands a sign. Because I'll literally, but I'll be damned if I believe a promise that doesn't come through. Not this time. What, after the millions of lambs offered, you expect me to believe an even better promise? How do I know? How can you be sure that the sacrifice given by Jesus the priest, which was his own body, how can you be sure that that was efficacious, effective, and enough? The simple proof is that God didn't leave him dead. He rose him up from the grave to eternal, indestructible life, and where did he put him? He put him at his right hand on the throne with the promise that through history to the end of time, every enemy of Jesus Christ will come down and serve him. Every enemy will be brought down to the feet of Jesus. His resurrection, him sitting at the throne, him ruling over history, him saving people and preserving the church today is the sign that that once for all sacrifice for all time and every sin was enough. That's what Christmas is. Every time we celebrate it, every Sunday, and every time, every year, we gather around, we do the presents, the food, the family, the tinsel, Mariah Carey comes on as part of the fall. It'll go away. The, the Frank Sinatra Christmas album, the country music Christmas album. Is there any greater taste of heaven? Here we have all these things. And what's it reminding us? Friends, he's sitting at the right hand of God. And when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upwards I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. The sign has been given. Charles Hodge was born in the late 1700s and he became one of the most prestigious theologians in in the world. Charles Hodge became the the, the president of Princeton Seminary back in the 1800s. 1851, he assumed the seat, the the highest theological seat basically in, in the Western world. No real ecclesiastical power. Don't hear me saying he was the Presbyterian Pope. But friends, he was up there in terms of influence and teaching and authority. The highest and most prestigious theological college in the world was there. Princeton in the Americas. And there he is. He gets that office. He's invited to become the, the president. And with that comes the house attached to the property. 
And so he's going to be studying all day. He's got a lot on his shoulders. He's got a family, but he's got this beautiful, large corner office, swivel chair, electric aircon, all the stuff back in 1800s, right? Beautiful office and a big door that just thuds when it shuts. And they loved him so much. They, they wanted to please him so much. They said, Professor Charles, Mr. Hodge, Your Honor, saintly sir, if there is anything we can do to make this office more attuned to your liking, if there's anything we can do, mention the pay. Mention, we could ditch this whole thing, give you a new office. You say whatever you want, and we will give it to you so that this is an office to your liking. And he walked over to the door, and he sort of stood next to it. He jiggled the handle, and he says, I'm sorry to be a pain, but this is my one requirement. This handle is just a few inches too high for my youngest, man, my youngest boy. And I never want to have an office where my boys can't come to me at every moment. Would you mind drilling a new hole and putting the handle just a few inches shorter so that he can access me whenever he needs? The highest chair of theological prestige in the world. And what does he want? He wants his children to have easy access to him. Jesus Christ is on the throne right now. He is on the chair above every chair, the rule above every rule, the throne above every throne. And do you know what he requests the Father? He says, I went, I took on the body, I accomplished your will as it was told of me. I did it all. Keep the door open for my children. Those whom I have purchased, I will not have. And the Father wholly agrees. They will not have a hard access to God's grace. Friends, some of you are not Christians and you know it. Some of you think you're Christians and you are not. Others of you are Christians and you fail to remember the glory of the gospel. God in heaven would not have any difficulty between you and his infinite saving graces. He has put the handle of faith right in front of you. He has not made you do something. He has not made you climb up to reach the handle. He simply says, for all of your sin, I know about it. I died for it. All the requirement that you had, I know it. I fulfilled it. All that you must do is come through the door. It's ready. It's easy. It's available. Pray out to God. Give me a heart to believe. I want this great gift at Christmas time. That is our prayer for you. That is our prayer for you, that you, if you are not in Jesus Christ, you would believe by faith the door would swing open and heaven would be yours in the person of Jesus Christ, the King. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful. We are so, so thankful that we can come to you at any time, no matter how lost we are in our sin, no matter how backslidden we are, no matter how many times we have failed or even today, no matter how guilty we realize we are before your law. No matter the degree to which we recognize our guilt and sin and filth before you, and our hopelessness to provide our own righteousness, no matter the state, the door is ready to be opened to your graces. Father God, thank you that in Jesus Christ, you sent the Messiah, the promised one, long awaited and long foretold through all of the sacrifices. And he brought, Lord God, not more teaching, not more advice, not more peculiarities and particulars about what to offer in a sacrifice. He just brought himself he came into this world with nothing but a body, and that body became the sacrifice for us. That body became the righteousness in our place. That body was raised to life again, and that body is right at your right hand now in heaven on the throne forever. So, Father, we pray 
that for all of us who have faith in Jesus, you would fulfill your promises and look to him and see us. Would you look to his righteousness and see us in him with his righteousness? Would you look to him and his perfection and forget all of our sins and see only his righteousness? For God, that is the promise of the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we are, we are hidden in you and all of your blessings. God, I pray that you would save people this morning who do not recognize that, who do not know that, who have not experienced the beautiful, glorious joy of a clean conscience. Let them not be like the Jews again, walking away from the holy place, walking away from church with another burden on their conscience of their own sin, with another day gone where they feel terrible under the weight of their sin. Father God, would you alleviate that? Would you wipe them clean? Would you bring them into your family? Give them the grace of regeneration today and place their faith in Jesus Christ that they would be saved forever. We thank you. Hallelujah. We praise you. We thank you, Jesus, for it is in your glorious, victorious name that we pray all these things. And everybody said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.